Yandex, DuckDuckGo, Swiss Cows and Bing. These are the names of some of the search engines we could be forced to use if Google makes good on its threat to quit Australia. But really, this week, on a brand new year of Download This Show, just how likely is it? What happens when tech giants play chicken with governments and the media? Plus, the messaging service WhatsApp sees an exodus on the scale of the Old Testament. And Donald Trump may not be president or on most social media platforms anymore. But does that make his influence online harder to track? All that much more coming up. It is a brand new year of media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new year. In fact, I did the maths this morning. It is the 10th year of Download This Show. And to mark that occasion, please welcome back. I don't know why I'm making it sound like it's a special thing. Uh, John O'Seidler, creative lead from Unyoked. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you. So auspicious. 10 years. <laughs> Have I been here for 10 years? Oh, my God. Sure. We, we just don't let you leave. Um, it's also, like, slightly Very lying because it's, like, the beginning of the 10th year, which is not really how maths works, which is a thing I would know if I spent more time with somebody who I assume is good at maths, Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy. Welcome back. Look, I'm here for any excuse for a cake. So uh, happy birthday, happy birthday. <laughs> so it turns out some stuff happened since the show was on air late last year. It seems somewhere along the line, Google threatened to leave Australia, Jono. W- why are they doing that? <sighs> We're trying to charge them for news, which is, I just, I feel like they really don't like to do it. Since we had this conversation a couple of days ago, I've been getting a lot of ads from the managing director who's going on the offensive at the moment. But essentially, uh, uh, Australia consumer law is trying to challenge Google and Facebook's uh, hegemony over the news platforms and our ability to make money out of news. Uh, it's becoming a big argy-bargy, my new favourite term, for what's going on. And Google is threatening to basically pull the plug, which could be a very interesting development. All right, Sarah, are they actually going to do this or is this just oh. one of those threats? Look, I tell you what, I was thinking about it. I'm like, how how much of my tech does Google touch? And it would be, I, I think it would be quite difficult for them to pull everything. If they just pulled search, I, you know, I can kind of see how that would work. Um, I don't think it will happen, but I think it's a conversation that's, you know, definitely progressing. Um, you know, what does search mean to us and what does it mean to find the news, right? Um, because I think at the centre of this argument is that Google is sort of saying, look, we're not providing the news, but we're providing access to it and news organisations should want that um, and that Google shouldn't have to pay for that privilege. It's interesting the thing that you bring up about search, Sarah, because search, like we think of it as like a separate function of Google. And, and that is what they're talking about. They're talking about, you know, potentially pulling search out. But search underpins so many other Google services like Maps and, and, and other aspects. Is there a sense, Jonathan, of whether or not uh, they're going to limit access to the search functionality in their other services? Or is it just that, you know, that window that we're familiar with, the search window? I don't think you can remove it. I think it's fundamental to the DNA, personally. And there's no way that you can get accurate searches on which cafe you want to go to or where that cafe is without using that search functionality. It was all built out from that. So I think it is, you know, while people are questioning how how realistic that threat is, it is quite a realistic threat in terms of, you know, there are entire small businesses that rely on, on Google's algorithm to be able to to be noticed and to be found. And, you know, what what happens to AdWords? There's a whole bunch of stuff that comes off that that I think we need to think about more seriously. I just think 
there's something really implausible about it. It just doesn't seem like a thing that there that is ever really going to be on the cards, if not purely because I don't even know how to use DuckDuckGo. <laughs> you you and 0.93% of Australians who use it. <laughs> don't make me use Bing. Come on. I don't want to use Bing. No one wants Join to use Join the 3%, Bing. Mark. Join the 3%. <laughs> All of this is caught up with their, their news product as well, which they've sort of threatened to hold off releasing in Australia. But weirdly, like in the last two days, Jonathan, they they have said when they're going to roll out their new product. Yeah, they have. And I'm just a bit dubious about that, really. It seems like convenient timing for them to just be like, oh, this thing that we've been talking about for ages. Same with Facebook. They've also had this kind of on the back burner and they've been courting and not courting media companies kind of for years. This is not a new conversation. It's just kind of come to a head. So I don't know if it's just like a slapdash answer where they're just trying to throw everything at the wall and hope that something sticks and they don't really have to pull out the big guns. But, uh, you know, interestingly, the, the, co- the conversation is now shifting to what does happen if there is a vacuum and Google does exit. Uh, is there room for more players? And if there's more players, there becomes competition and it kind of becomes more like the traditional media buying landscape that we're used to, which could actually be healthier in a way, presuming that we have three search engines or three providers able to do that. But that's kind of what the ACCC is saying now, which is like there could be a silver lining to this. It sounds good in principle, but I mean, if you're... Asking competitors to jump from 3% of the market to, you know, something that, you know, is sustainable as a business, that, that's not going to happen overnight, is it, um, Sarah? Well, look, I've thought about this a lot and I think the way to motivate Australians to do that, I've thought about the marketing campaign, I would just have like Batuta search, you know, something that's just like <laughs> so Aussie that you're like, yeah, I want my Aussie search engine, you know? Um, and, and I think that's the only way that we would um, adopt something that would you know, that would really take up that space is if it was a bit of a, you know, sticking the middle finger to big tech in America, like that we could do it independently and we can do it ourselves. That being said, do we have the tech chops in Australia? We do, we have great talent, but they're kind of working on other things. Um, And so, you know, what makes Google have this lucrative business is that they've got global scale and, you know, global revenues. To actually run that as a business in Australia, I think, you know, it's, it's a little, like while we could create the tech product, would you be able to create a viable tech business off the back of Australian only search? I don't know, man. I mean, maybe. No. I'd love to have a crack. <laughs> Just but like... Smith will do it. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I think the other thing is, is that to be able to do that, it would probably have to involve some heavy investment from the government. And up until now, they've not been particularly interested in investing in tech, like, you know, either in their own platforms or, or private, you know, supporting private investment to make Aussie-made tech. And I just, you know, it's just not going to work. Jonathan, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Dick Smith could do it. He seems to be very keen on this kind of thing. I feel like a Dick Smith times Atlassian kind of takeover would be great. Uh, but beyond that, I, I, I tend to agree. I don't, I don't think we have the capability to actually pull it off. So, yeah, it, it may not actually happen. But it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have creative lead from Unyoked, John O'Seidler, joining us alongside Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy. Mark Fennell is my name and it is a brand new year of Download This Show. And speaking of mass exoduses, is that the plural of mass exodus? Oh, let's go with it. Um, there's been a mass exodus from the messaging service WhatsApp, but why, Jono? 
Uh, hilariously, this was like a, a bit of a misinformation campaign from what I understand, but essentially some kind of memes or traveled around as a result of WhatsApp uh, sending out a, a notice about what they were doing with your privacy and your information, which was not really new news in the grand scheme of things, but uh, to a lot of people seemed like it was new and it seemed like they were handing over a lot of sensitive information to Facebook, which again has been something that's kind of been in WhatsApp's terms and conditions for I think about four years, um, but kind of became more apparent and everybody just freaked out and they were like, right, that's it. All my like previously encrypted end-to-end conversations are disappearing. Facebook's going to start advertising to me in feed. It's all going, it's all going tits up. Uh, and, and there was this kind of like, I think it was like, 8 million people just like vacated WhatsApp uh, in the space of a week and went to some of their rivals, which is a huge loss for them. They dropped down in the app store. It was a, it was a massive PR disaster. They're actually advertising to try and fix it. So it was, it was a big, big uh, misstep from them. Out of curiosity, what's their, what's their advertising sell to, to stop the, to stem the flow? Well, they're essentially got this like in-app search campaign where if people look up WhatsApp privacy, they will serve you with kind of a website that, you know, uh, kind of helps you uh, like deal with your fears <laughs> about what's happening. <laughs> but I think it's a bit of, yeah, you know therapy? what I mean? It's like, what, yeah, like what you think is wrong is it's kind of like what Google's doing with the whole news yeah. thing, right? Like we're getting all of these ads where they're kind of uh, script, getting comedians to try and, and talk us off the ledge, so to speak, when it comes to media regulation. So it's interesting to see how that happens, but it's a bit too late. Like I think the damage and the problem with WhatsApp and its success is that you can forward stuff that you see to, to you know, a bunch of people and it just spreads like wildfire so it's been really hard for them to contain well it's it's had issues in the past with you know mass forwards and whatsapp being linked to horrific acts of like mob violence in different places around the world but mm. i guess the thing that sort of underpins this error is that whatsapp is owned by facebook and it has been owned by facebook for some time does the sudden reaction make sense to you sarah it does, um, but not for the reason you'd think. So if you think about what's happened in the last 12 months, you've had a lot of people who are sitting at home and thinking about, hmm, what, what values do I have in my life? I have too much time in between the four walls of my home. Um, and a movie came out called uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix and people were thinking about big tech in a way they hadn't before. I just thought everyone knew all of this stuff and they didn't care Turns out, no, I do live in a little tech bubble and um, people didn't understand what, you know, big data really, really looks like. And so you've got this moment where all of a sudden you have informed consumers of Facebook, of um, WhatsApp and Facebook's, you know, data stuff. And then when this, you know, this conversation starts happening, people start to be, you know, t- take ownership of that and be like, oh shit, actually, no, I don't want that. I will delete WhatsApp. But the hilarity to me is how many of them deleted Facebook or Instagram? It's the same story on different platforms. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh yeah, sure. I've still got Instagram. You know, I mean, I thought about it and I, I, I have used Signal in the past. I've, I've used the competitors. But the thing is, is that, you know, WhatsApp has it's embedded my communities for those particular conversations. And the alternative is a bajillion different apps. And so what it will look like over the long term, we are still let, yet to see, I think. You brought up one of the competitors, the Signal. I know that a lot of people I kind of commune with on the internet, commune's totally not the word I wanted to go with there, but let's commit to it. Uh, <laughs> they ported all of our conversations from WhatsApp over the Signal and they are sort of equivalent. But from a privacy standpoint, Jono, is it actually better than WhatsApp? <laughs> I mean, Edward Snowden seems to think so. He's been like their largest advocate and they, okay. they often quote him and they say that, you know, he says, I've been using it for five years and I haven't been arrested yet, which I, th- <laughs> which I feel like that, is that a That is not a one-to-one comparison at all. 
but I think I, I think what's what's unique about them is you know while they kind it, while on face value they kind of look very similar, um, Signal holds a lot less information. They've actually been subpoenaed uh, quite recently in the US, and and they managed to prove that they actually didn't hold anything. You know, they didn't hold phone numbers, they didn't hold conversations. They were just really the portal for, by which people could communicate, but none of that was retained. And I don't think WhatsApp can actually make that claim uh, substantively, and that that is a fundamental difference. Is it just from a, a product standpoint, Sarah, is Signal better or worse to use? Uh, I don't know. I haven't fallen in love with it. Um, but I, th- I think the other thing for me is that there was kind of almost like a find my friends feature, which to me sort of seems like the opposite of privacy. And um, there was a point where you had to actually go in and turn that off. And I just was like, oh, come on, come on. Um, I think that Signal as a brand, like, sort of seems like the most amount of privacy, but I think we still need to keep our eye on it. And, um, you know, I mean, no no tech is perfect, as we know, and I think it's it's those gaps of imperfection that, that lead us to trouble down the line. What is the value of WhatsApp to Facebook, Jono? Because it feels like if you can't capture people's data and work out what they're interested in and therefore advertise to them, I don't really get what its actual, like, commercial value is to Facebook. Yeah, I think there's certain, and this is, you know, where you have to get really deep into their T's and C's, but there is certain information that they are still allowed to glean and use for advertising. Um, It's kind of what we would see as kind of like not the most essential data. Like they're not going to be looking at where we are or kind of like the the details of the conversations that we're having, but there is stuff like the images that we send or like the gifts that we, like there's a whole bunch of like residual information around WhatsApp conversations that is not protected under, I guess, the original WhatsApp remit. So there's definitely like stuff there it's also just that they they keep you in the ecosystem a lot of people that i know have kind of walked away from facebook entirely um and to sarah's point before about about instagram if you are moving off kind of those traditional social network platforms it's the last tentacle that facebook has and it's Mm. a pretty big one um so just keeping you in the ecosystem is probably a good enough reason for them to have it what's your take sarah well, uh, I had a little looky, and um, in iOS 12, it actually shows me how much personal data they, they take. Um, so there's the analytics side of the data and the app functionality. So from analytics, it's purchases, location, contact info, user content, identifiers like user ID, device ID, usage data, and diagnostic, diagnostics. But then in terms of app functionality, there's other things that they take in as well. So like my contacts, so they connect with everybody, and financial info. And like... That's a lot of data that is very useful for Facebook, which kind of makes sense from their perspective. But whether or not you just hand that over, if you knew that when you downloaded the app, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> mm. How much does it matter to Facebook that there is this bad PR that people are leaving, Sarah? Because, like, you know, we're talking about a handful of million. In the end, when you do the maths against how many people have Facebook accounts, it's not that much. I'm trying to work out if, if the effect for Facebook is, is the PR or is it actually about losing user numbers? Look, I, Sarah Moran, have been vowing to leave Facebook since about 2011, if not 2009. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I have and haven't, you know, like it's I, I'll join an app and then Facebook acquires it and all of a sudden I'm back in the ecosystem again. So, um, you know, I, I think the weight of my footprint may not be very heavy on Facebook, but trying to get out of its tentacle grasp is, you know, quite hard. So what does Exodus actually look like? It's not a big dent for them because they'll get you back eventually. Just by acquiring <laughs> new things. Yeah. They've also had they'll like, acquire they've had bad soon. PR. No, joking. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, John, you were saying? 
Oh, I was just going to say, this isn't the first bad PR like Facebook and WhatsApp have had either. Um, <laughs> he says like, in the understatement of the millennium. <laughs> no, but you know, like as in even when Facebook bought WhatsApp, there was a ton of bad PR around it, right? Like everyone was like, it's the end of WhatsApp. The founders kind of cashed mm. out and left. Everybody didn't want to have a, you know, I, I assumed at that point that that was going to be where the tipping point was because a lot of people were like, I don't want Facebook having their hands on this. This has been my sacrosanct kind of app for such a long time and nothing happened so that's what like they are kind of bulletproof in that regard because they've survived much worse pr crises than this together download this show is what you're listening to it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture mark fennell is my name our guest this week sarah moran from girl geek academy and jono seidler from unyoked and you may have heard that donald trump is no longer president of the united states but before that he also was dropped off twitter And there's a really important conversation to be had about whether or not that will actually have the desired effect. What happens to a person like that when they no longer have that reach to a massive audience? Does it push their audience into deeper, darker corners of the internet? Does it create other knock-on effects we haven't fully thought through? Sarah, what was your first reaction when Twitter did knock Donald Trump off the platform? Better late than never. Yeah, Um, because he'd broken terms and conditions that had dated back for years, right? Absolutely. So this is, you know, this is a conversation that's been had for a very long time, particularly, you know, what happens when you have somebody who is in the highest public office in your country, like to to de-platform them is actually making a statement, you know, that's quite a lot bigger than just any, any normal person. And I think um, the timing of the de-platforming being so close, you know, and post-election and all of those things, it was kind of like, well, the consequences are going to be pretty slim for, for Twitter to actually do that. And then all the others followed suit and, um, you know, back, backed, backed the de-platforming movement, as it were. But um, I love that he can't be on Pinterest anymore. That's just hilarious to me. Oh, isn't it? I just <laughs> wish I could see what his new cupboards in the kitchen were going to look like in his non-White House. Um, Probably gold. Yeah, look. Probably gold. <laughs> yeah, it'd be tacky. It'd, yeah. Donald Trump's Pinterest would be tacky gold things <laughs> and double-breasted suits. Mm. Look, deplatforming from Pinterest could be, you know, just quite, quite, quite good for the design of the world. Um, but I, you know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was really happy. You know, I'm like, maybe I never have to hear from this guy again. And um, yep, haven't, haven't thought about him for a while until you just brought it up, Mark. So thanks for that. You are so welcome. Jono, what do you think uh, what do you think happens to a guy like him now? Like he's not going to disappear and social media was such a powerful way in which of course he became president in the first way. It's a instrumental way in which he executed his presidency. What does a what are the social media options available to him in, in the next few years? Presum- we know he's been talking about building his own media empire. He's probably going to have to defend some legal challenges or two. Where does social media fit for Donald Trump in the next few years? I think it is definitely going to be a part of the media mix for him. It's going to look a little different. Um, there's obviously, we've talked about Signal before. Uh, there's Parler that, you know, which had its own issues post-inauguration. This is like, um, said to be like the, the ultra free speech, but mostly like alt-right friendly. Yeah, and Telegram, Telegram as well. I mean, there's obviously a few players who are gaining rapid amounts of users. Um, but I think the big difference for someone like Donald Trump is that he's used to having like what we call the megaphone effect, which is, you know, he goes out there and says, you know, 
Hillary's a stupid woman or whatever he wants to say, and he reaches millions immediately. And what you don't really get with most of these apps is the ability to kind of mass broadcast and also to kind of start fights with the other side. Mm. Um, they're not really hanging out there that much. So, you know, he can't really taunt and bait the left as much as he maybe would have liked. So, you know, obviously he's, he's still going to have a platform to speak. There are still going to be people who want to hear him speak, but that's going to become like more and more closed circuit, um, which, which impedes a number of things for him. A, the ability for his message to, to then reach the mass media, but also, um, which was interesting with what we saw with like Alex Jones um, and Milo, whose surname I can never pronounce. Yiannopoulos. Uh, that's the one, um, is that they actually like lost revenue as a result of being deplatformed. And mm. that to me is really interesting. Trump's got a lot of legal battles coming up. He probably owes, I mean, we know he owes a lot of people a lot of money. Um, I was probably relying on canvassing through social to help um, get that money back. So having been deplatformed really reduces his ability to get that kind of cash on mass, which I think will have the most detrimental effect to him kind of short term. There's also an idea doing the rounds at the moment that it also might make tracking some of his claims and misinformation a bit harder. Sarah, do you buy that as an argument? Oh, I mean... I don't know. It's, it's probably... <laughs> you're, just, you're just so grateful to not have to see him on your Twitter feed, aren't you? I really you? <laughs> don't, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, I think, sure, like it might be hard to verify his claims, but they're also not going to be rebroadcast in mainstream media and amplified in social media. And I think that's the thing, right? So deplatforming him off major tech platforms means that it's not going to circulate. So if you think about, um, I guess, the media cycle is, you know, has been, Trump would say something, people would report on it, then people discuss it, you know, over the water cooler at work. If he doesn't have access to break his own news, um, what journalists are actually going to hunt it down, what people will then actually, you know, your average person isn't going to be discussing those ideas at work or, you know, just like, ah, ha, ha, as a bit of banter. And I think, that's the best part. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I'll be able to go to the pub and no one will know what Trump's doing and that's going to make me very, very happy. <laughs> What's your take, John? Do you think it is going to be harder to track and, and I guess, tackle misinformation, some of the claims? I think it definitely will be because a lot of the platforms that he that we see people like Donald Trump popping up on are kind of one-to-one or small group messaging where it will be harder to intercept and we're not going to see that kind of mass kind of element. I mean, I went away to to some of our cabins uh, while this whole capital situation happened. So I came out and I had no idea what Trump had done, which was like a blissful ignorance for about two days. And now I've realised that that's what the whole world gets, which is really nice. <laughs> um, I do think we also end up having an issue, though, um, you know, with the whole free speech argument, which I think Jack was alluding to. But by deplatforming Trump, we, we you know, we make a very clear statement that I think is going to have knock-on effects. Um, there are other really uh, difficult or demonic, I would say, world leaders who do still have access to those channels and now we're going to have to start making judgment calls or put that in the hands of very few kind of tech leaders um, mm. as to when we deplatform those people and why. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the other component to this is, okay, it's one thing to talk about Donald Trump, but before Donald Trump was kicked off Twitter, uh, hundreds of different uh, accounts associated with his movement were also kicked off. And, and then some accounts that were just straight up and down bots and misinformation. So there was a, a wave of cancellations on a, on a raft of different social media platforms that were, were cancelled beforehand. And I, I guess it's the thing to consider for me is that stuff moving to a subterranean space, so like a parlour or a slug, when actions emerge out of those subcultures, will they be tremendous shocks and surprises to us, Sarah? Well, I think, 
oh, I don't know, it's the bit that I struggle with is it's, um, you know, if, if Twitter and Facebook and all of those places are like the town square, then you're walking around town recruiting people, whereas apps that are sort of a bit, you know, more underground, you know, a little bit more out of the way, how do you actually convert users to them without campaigns and advertising? Like, how do you actually recruit people onto those networks unless they're actually seeking it out? Mm. And I think probably the biggest thing over the last um, four to five years for me has been your average person who would not have Googled, oh, what's a conspiracy theory, has ended up being recruited into these, you know, these ideas and these thoughts and, and be, becoming part of these communities in a very direct recruitment on mainstream platforms. And that's, that's the thing I think will be interesting to watch. Um, I think there is, in terms of monitoring those, you know, uh, darker or, or different um, locations, I, I think that's, I don't know, I don't know whose role it is to actually do that and to say, hey, there's trouble a-brewing over here, you know. Um, I, I don't know what that looks like on the internet anymore. It's it's a it's a welcome to 2021, I guess. <laughs> How about you, John? I have an idea. Yes, I have an idea. Me. Maybe when, when Google News starts up, because clearly they're very keen to do that, uh, they can have a reporter, which is just like a dark web slash secret apps beat. And all they do is hang out on Signal all day reporting on what Donald Trump's doing. But I thought their whole thing was none of them wanted to be regarded as media companies. Surely the moment you hire, like, actual journalists, you, you can no longer execute that argument. I know, I know. It was, it was an instant idea. I didn't say it was the right one. <laughs> you mean we didn't solve all the internet's problems in the space of 28 minutes and 30 seconds? Oh, I know, it's terrible. Come back to me next week and I'll definitely have the answer. I mean, th it does set a precedent, right? And as you say, there are, you know, other despotic world leaders with a gift for, for social media. Does it set a precedent for them now? And, and what is that bar that now needs to be cleared if these platforms do want to kick other leaders around the world off? I, I mean, I, that's the big question for me. I mean, I look at like the, uh, the, the leader of the Philippines is a great example who says horrible things all the time, who has, you know, said terrible things about women particularly, which would just not fly on the world stage and still, to my knowledge, has access to most social media platforms. Like worse than Trump in, in quite a number of ways and still has access. There's also um, the prime minister of, uh, sorry, the president of, of Brazil as well, um, who said some kind of almost outlandish and ridiculous things, not only about COVID, but also about kind of like burning down the Amazon and a bunch of different stuff. By my kind of rationale, both of those guys should also be deplatformed, but they haven't been. And that's to me because they're not front of mind at the moment. Um, Trump was obviously the white whale in, with regards to that. He was the one that they really wanted to get to kind of send a message. And it's possible that by deplatforming Trump, you do send that message out to everybody else that you kind of have to be a bit on guard and nobody is safe, you know, in, in order to be able to kind of spread those kind of views anymore. Maybe they will kind of dial it back a bit. That's, you know, that would be the best case scenario. I'm just not sure that's going to happen. What should the bar be for you, Sarah? Like if, if what, what, would, what would a world leader have to say or do for you to be like, let's imagine that you're Zuckerberg, be like, that's it, we're done, you're out, you're gone. I don't know. I would have implemented a lot of this stuff a lot earlier, right? Like mm. um, these companies feel like they don't have values other than, I don't know, it's your conversation, do what you want with it. Um, and, and I think what that ties into for me is that it happens here in Australia too. And I think what 
what we talk about when we talk about deplatforming is we have to acknowledge what gives people a platform. And and in this in this regard, we're talking about our elected officials. Um, and there are elected officials in Australia who propagate misinformation and um, we don't take their platform away because they're an elected official. And I think that that's something that's, you know, that's really hard for me. Like Trump broke the rules and we didn't deplatform him sooner because of his, his, his you know, his, his office, his public role. And I think... That, for me, is the conversations I'd be having is, does that matter? You know, like, does somebody have the right, uh, particularly in America, where they're, all, you know, <laughs> all about, this is a private company, I can do what I want. Like, if it was my private company and I was Mark Zuckerberg, I'd be like, dude, you break the rules, get out. You know, I don't care who you are. Um, just because of that amp amplification that, you know, has helped that person retain that power and that platform over time, I think. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we are out of time. Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy, thank you so much for coming back on Download This Show. Bye-bye. <laughs> I dare to say it a third time. Uh, Jono Seidler from Unyoked, thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. And, of course, thank you for listening to a brand new year, our 10th, as I like to say, uh, year of Download This Show. We'll be back with more news, media, technology and culture next week. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.